We would like to acknowledge and respect the traditional owners, including the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people, as the original custodians of this land, along with their customs and traditions and their special relationship with the land. It's June the 4th, and welcome to The Wind Down, a recap of the week's news produced by Swinburne University's The Standard. I'm your host, Aditi Gutti. Among this week's headlines, Daniel Andrews returned to work after recuperating from severe back injuries. Also coming up, Lauren spoke with vaccine communication specialist Dr. Jessica Kaufman about vaccination mixed messaging and how the government could better communicate with under-40s. Plus, we asked you what living in Australia in 2060 would look like. And now for the week's headlines. The confusion around the vaccine grew last week when Scott Morrison announced that under-40s could get the AstraZeneca vaccine. If you wish to get the AstraZeneca vaccine, then we would encourage you to, A, go and have that discussion uh, with your GP. Does that mean that people under 40 will be able to talk to their GPs and get the jab immediately? Well, if they wish to go and speak to their, joc- their, their doctor and have access to the AstraZeneca vaccine, they can do so. One of the main points of uncertainty is whether it's just young people who are the priority cases that can receive AstraZeneca, or all those under 40. Some GPs have said they won't administer the vaccine as it is not the preferred vaccine for the age group. They're afraid they will be liable if a recipient gets the rare blood clotting syndrome, but that has been compensated for by the government's new indemnity scheme. State government health officials have criticised the Commonwealth's decision. Queensland's Chief Health Officer Dr Jeanette Young was adamant that the state would follow advice from the Australian Technical Advisory Group on immunisation and stand by Pfizer as the preferred vaccine. No, I do not want under 40s to get AstraZeneca because they are at increased risk of getting the, the rare, it is rare, but they're at increased risk of getting that rare clotting syndrome. But Queensland have also declared they will run out of Pfizer vaccines by June 5th. Health Minister Yvette Darth has requested 152,000 extra doses, but says this has fallen on deaf ears. Victoria received 100,000 during their latest lockdown. We'll hear more on vaccine hesitancy from Dr Jessica Kaufman later in the episode. A pre-sentence hearing was conducted last week on the case of the Gundan couple, who were deemed guilty in April of harbouring a woman as a slave in their home for eight years. A Tamil Indian woman was found in a pool of her own urine inside the couple's Mount Waverley home in 2015. She was emaciated and living with undiagnosed diabetes. The defence lawyers argued the victim's work hours and lack of evidence for abuse. Character references submitted claim that Kumutuni Kannan is a valued member of her community and her husband, Kundasami Kannan, was a decent man who was more respectful to the victim than his wife. The couple have been found guilty of possessing a slave which has a maximum penalty of 25 years in jail. They are currently on bail to be sentenced at a later date. Daniel Andrews returned to work on the 28th of June after recuperating for 111 days from a serious back injury in March. The Premier took a fall at his holiday home in Sorrento, suffering broken ribs and spinal damage. Earlier in June, Victorian Liberal members sought more information about the accident and injuries. In a video message, Premier Andrews claimed politics isn't always like that, and thanked James Molino for stepping in for that time as Acting Premier. I definitely want to thank, and most importantly in many ways, I want to thank the Deputy Premier James Molino, who's done an outstanding job to him, to Megan, to his kids. They wouldn't have expected that they would be spending these last nearly four months 
doing this work, so I'm very grateful to them and all the colleagues. His first port of call was an appearance at one of the new Metro Tunnel stations, part of the big infrastructure build. Premier Andrews has suggested he will be leading the party into the 2022 state elections. If successful, he will join the ranks of premiers who have served more than 3,000 days and will be honoured with the statue at one Treasury place. On Monday last week, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg released a fifth intergenerational report, projecting the outlook for Australia over the next 40 years. It's meant to cover the relations between the generations and predict the major aspects of Australian life, such as housing, climate, economy and ageing. But the document has been criticised as mostly concerned with the state of the federal budget. Highlights include setting productivity growth at 1.2%, and if lower, will lead to 9-10% lower incomes by 2060-2061, to with a budget deficit 2.2% wider. The nation's ageing population is indicating a change in the age of working age people. By 2060-2061, to Australians in retirement will significantly increase, implying heavy reliance on government spending and a strain on health and aged care. And on campus, we wanted your opinion on what living in Australia would be like in 2060. But like an intergenerational report came out and it predicts what's going to happen in Australia in like 40 years. We're just curious what people think Australia will be like in 2060. What do you guys think? Very hot, like just humid and... Yeah, I don't... I think it will change. I don't know how drastic the changes will be depending on what happened. Yeah, I think there will be changes, but I don't know how drastic they will be. Without some sort of government intervention, there's only going to be widened in terms of the inequality that's mm -hmm. uh, here. Um, I think climate change is going to be a significant issue. Well, it is already, but um, mm. it's going to become more of a significant issue. I think migration is something that needs to be addressed, um, given that you know we rely on migration in a lot of respects for our economic well-being, and that's obviously an issue now with borders somewhat shut. So. Um, yeah. Um, probably very difficult financially. I don't think any of us will be able to buy, uh, buy houses. I think there's going to be no, barely any children, honestly. I think there's going to be a lack of population, but probably in a better way. A lot of racial issues here. There'll be, almost be like new cities, um, like populations obviously going up and up and up. So yeah, I think Bendigo's, Ballarat's might become like little cities, mm -hmm. little CBDs. Um, I just hope that it's still a happy and accepting place and it gets more and more multicultural and accepting and happy. That'd yeah. be ideal. That'd be very nice. Someone actually said we asked someone earlier today. They're like, oh, you know, I'll be dead by then. I was like, that's so dismal. <laughs> I'll be dead. <laughs> so I hope it's good. Today will progress a lot technologically and we'll all have a lot of free time, I guess, because of technology. Thanks, Lauren. The self-proclaimed Big Bird Bandits appeared before a South Australian magistrate's court on Wednesday after being charged with the theft of a 160,000 Big Bird costume from the Adelaide Sesame Street Circus in April. You are about to hear the loudest, angriest bird you have ever heard. Yeah! The accused thieves left the court in style, wearing turtlenecks, vintage suit jackets and sunglasses before entering a limousine, which, after struggling to get started, took the pair away. The alleged bird thieves, Tasman Binder and Cody Milton, stirred up trouble when the Sesame Street local went missing for several days from the circus, and police were involved. Big Bird was found back at the circus a few days later, with a note in its beak from his kidnappers reading, 
We had no idea what we were doing or what our actions would cause. We were just having a rough time and trying to cheer ourselves up. Mr. Binder and Mr. Milne will appear before court again in November. Bill Cosby has been released from prison after a three-year stint behind bars as his sexual assault conviction has been rescinded. The actor-comedian spent time in prison after being found guilty of drugging and molesting university professor Andrea Constant and was the first celebrity to be convicted as part of the Me Too era. Many more women came forward claiming to have been assaulted by Cosby as well. His conviction was overturned as the court found he was unfairly prosecuted. As a previous district attorney had promised Mr. Cosby in 2005 that he wouldn't be criminally charged over the accusations from Ms. Constant. The judges found that Cosby had relied on that promise when giving self-incriminating evidence. Recently, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court found that the early promise to not prosecute, based on evidence Cosby gave in the civil lawsuit, needed to be honoured, resulting in release from prison. Ms. Constant said she was disappointed in the decision and that she hoped it would not prevent victims of sexual assault from coming forward in the future. Chinese President Xi Jinping has said his country won't be bullied by foreign powers and that anyone trying to do so would be met with a great wall of the steel of 1.4 billion Chinese people. The president made an address to the over 70,000 Beijing citizens in Tiananmen Square to commemorate the 100-year anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party. It was punctuated with a large military presence, including a flyover of military helicopters and jets. President Xi repeatedly mentioned his desire to restore Taiwan, a nation that has never been owned by China, but long considered by the CCP as a rogue province, and that force would be used if necessary to retain the island. Taiwan's people have rejected the notion of joining the One China policy. Here's Trent Nice with Sport. Sport this week has seen the Phoenix Suns qualify as the first team to make the 2021 NBA Finals. It comes off the back of a remarkable 41-point performance by Chris Paul, leading Phoenix over the now-eliminated Los Angeles Clippers. Australian Liz Cambage has been selected for the prestigious WNBA All-Star squad. It means she is now eligible to play in the All-Star game in Las Vegas against the US women's team in the next coming weeks. Round 15 AFL action saw Melbourne still on top, but with Geelong now catching their lead. Geelong started round 16 with a win against Essendon and now have won four out of the last five games. And finally in sport, Shakari Richardson has copped a one-month ban, meaning she will miss the Olympics after testing positive for cannabis. In an interview, the US women's 100-metre sprinter told NBC she used marijuana as a way to cope with the unexpected death of her mother. I've been Trent Neese, and that's it for this week on sport on The Wind Down. Thanks, Trent. Scott Morrison's announcement on the new vaccine policy caught many by surprise early last week. The federal government's conflicted messaging is leaving some confused about vaccination. Lauren Bodica spoke with Dr. Jessica Kaufman, a research fellow in vaccine uptake at Murdoch Children's Research Institute, about what government vaccine campaigns should be like. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. <laughs> good. Nice. So could you please give a brief introduction of who you are to listeners and what you do? Sure. Uh, I'm a research fellow at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in the vaccine uptake group. And generally what I do research about is how to communicate with people about vaccines, how to encourage vaccine acceptance and confidence, training of healthcare providers to Mm -hmm. talk about vaccines, that kind of thing. And usually it's about childhood vaccination and about maternal vaccination for women when they're pregnant. But in the last year, 
as with everyone, I think, we've started doing a lot more work around COVID-related vaccines. Mm. Yeah, that would have been quite a shift in sort of job description, I guess. The recent news that came out this week about under-40s getting AstraZeneca was quite interesting, particularly for me, someone in their 20s who doesn't really know what to make of this kind of messaging. What were your thoughts when this came out? Um. Look, it's pretty confusing. That was my first thought was I'm not, I've been saying all along, I think in an ideal world, we would have the vaccine program open to everyone. I think that's important. I think that there a lot of our challenges have really come from the fact that we've had to, you know, limit who could get the vaccines at different times. So I, I'm in general, I'm in favor of, of opening the program up. However, I think the way it was communicated was very confusing. And then everything that happened after the announcement that the prime minister made early in the week has really confused issues. So he said, we're opening AstraZeneca up to people under 40. Then we had the Australian Medical Association kind of coming out and saying, well, we don't support that. We had GPs saying, oh, I'm not going to deliver the vaccine to people under 40. We've seen and, and that, you know, GPs saying they weren't told in advance. So there's a lot of confusion there. And then of course, we've got the chief health officers from the different states and the premiers kind of going, well, we're not going to offer it here, but you're going to offer it there. Very confusing messaging. The key message, I guess, that I would say through all of this is the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunizations, ATAGI, their advice mm-hmm. hasn't changed. And their advice was Pfizer is the preferred vaccine for people under 60. And if you are under 60 and you have a personalized conversation with a GP about your risks and the risks of the vaccine, and you come to the informed decision to get this vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine, then it's it's okay. It's approved in that, in, in that age bracket. What do you think about all of the different voices that are contributing to this? Like the Queensland Chief Health Officer, Jeanette Young, who was quite heated in a conference as well, apparently earlier this week. So what what do you think about all these voices and how do they like influence yeah. people? Oh, uh, it doesn't help. Certainly it's been really confusing for people. I think all the different voices and all the different voices from positions of authority. And so normally we're sort of looking to the chief health officer for some guidance, but, but historically they, they've really been advising things that have sort of been in line with each other. And this is the first time I think we've seen it turn into a much more politicized discussion, a much more sort of contradictory discussion, and nobody really wins with that. So there's definitely people who will say, I'm confused, I'm not going to do anything, I'm not going to get vaccinated. Even people who are eligible, it, it sort of can damage that trust. But, you know, I, I think that the, ultimately all of these people in that are talking about the issue are coming from the same general place of wanting wanting to protect people in Australia. So they're just having some disagreements, I guess, around how much uh, we should be sort of paternalistically protecting people from risk, so not giving them the opportunity to take a risk. Do you think media institutions are like exacerbating the confusion a little bit? Oh, uh, look, well, whatever gets clicks is really what, uh, <laughs> or, or something like that, that's what, the me- what really drives the media. Oh, I mean, they have to, <laughs> exactly, they have <laughs> yeah. to inform people, of course, but reporting on the inflammatory debates or on, you know, safety events and stuff certainly gets drives traffic. So, um, you know, I wouldn't want to say that it's, you know, down to the media or it's the media's fault, but there have been some um, inflammatory media headlines throughout the pandemic, which I don't think have helped. 
So what do you think of the campaigns that the government have released in the past? Like, I don't think there has been much of a media campaign. I mm. don't think there's been a great deal of promotional effort coming out from the federal government. And I think that's to the detriment of the vaccination program. But yeah, the campaign such that it was or is, is it's, you know, some, some simplistic graphics and really generic messaging around how the vaccines are developed or how safe they are, or who can get them. That's important information, but it's not going to drive uptake and it's not going to address hesitancy. And then there's been some videos with Nick Coatsworth, who's just sort of very dry, kind of, you know, walking around yeah. talking about vaccines. Um, you know, the, the government said they were targeting older people because those were the people that were prioritized for vaccination. I'm not sure even older people were motivated by those ads or saw yeah. them. But, you know, they haven't been really widely, you know, they haven't been on mainstream TV. They haven't been like everywhere. So I think there's a lot of gaps. My understanding is that the government made a decision that they didn't want to over over promote the ca- the vaccine when they didn't have a lot of supply. We've heard great things from campaigns from New Zealand and Singapore and the UK. Like those are the ones that I really like anyway. So is that in stark contrast, I guess? I mean, I don't know how many vaccine doses they have. Mm. I'm sure that's not, I guess, what they're thinking. Well, right. I'm not entirely sure what the supply uh, and and delivery situation is in each of those countries, but I think you're right. They've really taken an approach of um, reaching out to the whole to the whole greater public in general, to all demographics, all all ages um, and backgrounds. Really importantly, in particularly in the New Zealand ad, you know, it's very diverse, and I think that's something that's really been lacking in our advertisements around the campaign around the vaccines. It's very, very white, very older, skewed kind of uh, spokespeople here. Yeah, really highlighting the benefits of vaccination beyond just not getting. COVID, you know, more about like, I can plan my wedding, I can travel overseas, I want to be able to keep my kids in school all year. Those kinds of things really, I think, are worth highlighting when you have a country like Australia, where we don't have really high rates of COVID. So you can't just point to, we won't get COVID and die. You know, that's a motivating factor in countries where there's lots of COVID, but it's not so much here. The government didn't want to target younger people because they were saying, oh, they can't get the vaccine yet. But people talk to each other and it's, we're an interconnected community. So young people are talking to their parents about the vaccine and young people are starting to decide whether they'll get the vaccines. And if no one is speaking to them at all, Mm. You know, that's just entrenching hesitancy. Yeah, and I really liked how you spoke about tapping into the things that people want to do or need and getting the vaccine, maybe because of that. And your the vaccine preparedness study, you had a bit of contribution to that, didn't you, as well? It was a study that we did on behalf of the Victorian government, and we collected data from people who were prioritized in phase 1A and 1B in mm-hmm. Victoria. So it was healthcare workers, people over 70 and people under 70 with chronic health conditions. And we asked them all kinds of questions around whether they were going to get the vaccines, what was motivating them, what factors Mm -hmm. affected their decision-making, what their concerns were, and how they wanted to be communicated with so that it could Mm -hmm. sort of inform communications. was something that came out really strongly from that research was this sense that people wanted to hear from real people. They didn't want to just hear from politicians. They wanted to see the vaccine presented in terms of the benefits, like you were saying, the things that they would be able to do potentially in the future, not just focusing purely on prevention of disease recommendations, which hopefully 
we'll see it acted in some communication soon. In terms of the future campaign that comes out in July and maybe it's targeting under 40s, like what should they maybe do if they want to be successful? What, what are your recommendations? Oh, wow. Just let me at it. I'll give them all kinds of recommendations. So, look, first of all, I would say, well, let's see if it actually comes out in July because mm-hmm. they, as I said, they continue to be very reluctant to promote vaccination when they don't have supply. And so if they don't feel that they have sufficient Pfizer available in July, I would expect that campaign will be delayed. Something engaging, so something that's that's funny or emotional or uses some celebrities or something because the whole idea of those campaigns like the New Zealand one and the Singapore one are you see them they resonate with you because they're funny and engaging you share them with someone else you watch it again you talk about it it becomes part of the the zeitgeist you know it's something people are actually talking about and that just means you're engaging with that message over and over again and that's really the 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 hallmark of i guess successful advertising campaigns certainly is that they become part of the discussion that people are having i also think that multiple different targeted campaigns are probably necessary you know one overarching message for the whole of australia is not you know be all it can really do is raise awareness. It's not going to address individual groups' concerns. It's not going to make everyone feel like they are represented. So, you know, we can do audience segmentation in advertising. I'm sure we could do that here so that when you are on, you know, TikTok or whatever, you know, platform, you're seeing something that's really targeted to your age bracket. And then when the oldies are on Facebook, they get something else, you know. So I think we should be hopefully seeing a variety of messages coming out. And I read as well, Dee Madigan, I think she talked about um, putting or using fear. Is that a good idea? I'm so, I really don't want us to go down this route. I think it's a huge mistake. And I have seen this call come from a couple different people in sort of the advertising space. And I just, the evidence does not support this approach, particularly for vaccination. But really, I mean, people refer to the AIDS campaign in the 80s, AIDS awareness campaign with the Grim Reaper. And that actually caused huge problems. It caused enormous stigmatization for gay men. And I mean, it was just... It was really, like, it frightened people of AIDS, I suppose, but it really, um, at what cost? With vaccination, you know, the idea of a fear campaign would be something like they show lots of people dying of COVID or something like that, and they say, you don't want this to be you, so you should get vaccinated. And there's been a number of research studies using that kind of messaging around childhood vaccination, and it totally backfires, and people end up more afraid of everything, including the vaccine. We haven't tried, as we were saying, celebrity and humour, although I have seen a lot of, um, like recently I saw Maggie Beer with a photo of herself getting the jab. So (laughs) that kind of thing is quite positive. And I do find it quite corny, but um, I think, you know, that is a more positive view of getting a vaccine. I mean, people, there's sort of two sides, two two levels of this. So there's like a campaign that's designed from some professional agency and it's really schmick and it's great. And Mm -hmm. that's one thing. And then there's this grassroots idea of like you and your family and your friends and celebrities posting photos of themselves getting the vaccine and saying that they've gotten the vaccine. And that has a totally different power because that's really about normalizing vaccination. All the different research that's coming out about, you know, the rare blood clotting and recently research came out about inflammation uh, of like the heart muscle or muscles around the heart. Yeah, myocarditis with with Pfizer, yeah. 
Yeah, so that was and Madonna as well, which was like, oh, yeah. why does that have to come out and make me nervous? I don't need that. I understand. Look, I think it's it's the messaging around it has, as we've talked about, it's been really messy. We're finding these safety issues or or risks because we have really good safety monitoring and because we're now vaccinating billions of people. So normally you would, uh, you know, build a profile of a, of a medicine as it sort of existed and was delivered to people over a really long period of time. And none of those side effects would ever get front page news. We are understanding these vaccines better than ever before. And we're picking these things up really quickly, which means that we're learning how to treat them very quickly. And just to reassure people, the this <laughs> inflammation of the heart, which has been, there's been a, a couple dozen cases of this identified in Australia in younger people when they've had the Pfizer vaccine. However, it appears to be very mild. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's your heart is inflamed, but it does not affect heart function. They monitor it, they treat it, and then it's See, appears to pretty much resolve. Is it? I mean, is it very surprising for young people to be reluctant about getting AstraZeneca? Well, I would say two things. First of all, it's very normal for people to have concerns and questions about the vaccines in every age group. Long COVID does appear to happen in people who get mild infections. And that's something that I think young people should be aware of when they're weighing up the risks of, of COVID itself. Um, but also, I don't think we need to necessarily encourage all young people to go out and get the AstraZeneca vaccine. The vaccine that's preferred for this age group is Pfizer. And I do think that for most people, that risk benefit equation, even if you are, um, you know, younger than than forty and you're not sure when you're going to get Pfizer, I would probably say you should still wait. It's likely that by the time you get full protection from AstraZeneca, which is in three and a half months, once you've had the second dose in another two weeks, it's quite likely that Pfizer or Moderna supplies will be more present by October. Young people are the ones that are the most affected by all these lockdowns not having secure work and things like that. And vaccination is one of the ways that you're going to be um, allowed to function in in an open society again. Is there anything that maybe you wanted to highlight? A lot of times people are a little bit not as tech savvy or they don't have, um, you know, the understanding of, of the information. So if you can help people find that information and have that conversation, help someone make an appointment in your family or something like that, I would just encourage people to be, as we call them, vaccine champions. Thank you for joining me and thank you for your time as well. No worries. Thanks for having me. You can tell us your thoughts on Twitter at Swin Journalism or Instagram at Swinburne Journalism. If vaccines and lockdowns are stressing you out and you're craving for some easy celebrity gossip, this is a headline for you. Zendaya and Tom Holland have been snapped engaging in PDA in Los Angeles. The couple, who both star in the MCU Spider-Man franchise, have been rumoured to be in a relationship since 2017. They're not the first iteration of Peter Parker and Mary Jane to have dated. Toby Maguire and Kirsten Dunst began a relationship on the set of 2002 Spider-Man, and Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone famously dated through two installments of their Amazing Spider-Man franchise. Do I like him? Or do I just need a main character for my daydreams and I've just got too invested in the story? It's a good question. Neither of those couples are still together. Today's episode of The Wind Down was written by Lauren Bodica and Angus Delaney. Our editor was Lauren Bodica and album artwork is by Emily Lee. You can find us on Twitter at Swin Journalism, Instagram at Swinburne Journalism, or on our website, theswinstandard.net. I'm Aditi Kuti. Thanks for joining us.